Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Hi there. We have a great guest today. One day I was reading an article called High Tech, High Risk, an assessment of the new healthcare privacy regulations. Well, every one of us is a consumer of healthcare. Some of us have to use it more, some less. As we get older, God forbid, we have to use it even more. But it's very important that we know about the privacy issues, especially with all the electronic privacy uh, records that are being established right now. So I wanted to get this wonderful expert who happens to be a certified information privacy professional like I am, and he's also very active in the International Association of Privacy Professionals, which I am a member, and I have just really enjoyed reading what he's written and honored him. So I'm so thrilled to have him on our as our guest. And I want to tell you a little bit about Kirk Jay Nanra. He is a partner with Wiley Rhine in um, Washington, D.C. He's all the way on the East Coast. He specializes in healthcare privacy, information security, and overall compliance litigation and counseling for healthcare and property casualty insurance industries. He also provides counseling to the financial industry, and that has a lot to do with our consumer financial privacy. He's the chair of the firm's privacy practice and is co-chair of its healthcare practice. So he works with insurers and healthcare industry participants in developing compliance programs and defending against government investigations and their practices. He serves on the board of the directors of the International Association of Privacy Professionals, and he is the editor of Privacy Advisor, which is the monthly newsletter of the IAPP, which I read every month. He is a certified information privacy professional, and he also serves on the advisory board for the Healthcare Reporter and the Healthcare Fraud Report, 
And he was named as the co-chair of the Confidentiality, Privacy, and Security Working Group, which is a panel of government and private sector privacy and security experts advising the American information, uh, the American health information community on privacy and all sorts of security issues. He has been named an expert practitioner by the Guide to the Leading U.S. Healthcare Lawyers and he also was named a leading healthcare lawyer by the Best Lawyers in America directory. And he's one of the leading privacy hired guns by the computer world. So he has so much to offer. We're thrilled to have him with us. Thank you so much, Kirk, for joining us. Oh, thank you, Mari. Thanks for asking me. Oh, well, this is terrific. I, I very much enjoyed reading and learning from you. So now is the chance that we get to talk and you get to teach all of my audience going by. So let's talk about HIPAA. This is this you know, law that people have heard about. They go to their doctors. They have to sign these privacy notices. They don't even know what it is. So, so what is the HIPAA law, and what do we hear about for health? Why is it so important to healthcare privacy, and, and why um, do we have to sign those things? <laughs> sure. A lot of different questions there. I let's, know. Let's, uh, sort Just of take talk it from about the top. it. Yeah. Um, the HIPAA law goes back, uh, boy, even to 1996, and it actually had nothing to do with privacy at first. It had to do with uh, the issue of portability of your health care coverage. If you, uh, if you were sick and you wanted to change jobs, there was a concern back in the early 90s about uh, inability to, to move jobs because people would lose their health care coverage. So Congress passed a law that dealt with portability of health care coverage. We uh, obviously didn't completely solve that problem since it's an issue we're talking about uh, still again with health care reform today. But when Congress passes a law like that that everybody agreed with, what they tended to do is they tended to throw in a lot of the kitchen sink in health care. So they threw in a bunch of other provisions. One of them had to do with something called administrative simplification, which was designed as we were getting into the electronic age and the internet age to standardize the healthcare business on some of the basic transactions that go back and forth. When you go to the doctor, the doctor turns in a claim and the insurance company sends something back to the doctor saying what was paid. They wanted to standardize those elements. They thought electronics and computers were going to make everything faster and more efficient and, and less expensive. But Congress was worried about privacy at that point. So they said, wait a minute, we don't really know what to do about privacy, but we're concerned about it. Uh, so we need a law that says there's going to be privacy rules. And that's really what the HIPAA law said. A um, little bit of uh, Congress knowing what it was capable of and what it wasn't capable of. It gave itself three years to pass its own privacy law couldn't do anything in those three years. And so what we really talk about with healthcare privacy under HIPAA is a federal regulation that had to be issued by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services when Congress couldn't figure out and couldn't agree what it wanted for the privacy laws. So when you hear HIPAA, that's what started in the privacy area was these regulations that came out of the federal government back in 2000 and really went into effect in 2003. Well, when we talk about healthcare privacy, what exactly are we talking about? Sure. Well, it's a, it's a good question because it's a, it's a little bit misleading when we start to think about these HIPAA laws. What HIPAA does is it protects certain kinds of information when it's held by certain kinds of entities. 
the, the, as I said a minute ago, the HIPAA law started with portability, the idea of taking your health care coverage with you from one employer to the other, and that was part of the, the framework that we developed the privacy rules in. We also had administrative simplification, which involves doctors and hospitals and health insurers, but doesn't involve lots of other kinds of entities in this country that have health care information. So when the, when the federal government started writing these rules, they only had the ability to apply the rules to doctors, hospitals, you know, healthcare providers, people that provide healthcare services, something called health plans, which basically means health insurers and employer healthcare benefit plans, but it's not a general set of medical privacy rules. So there are all kinds of places where your healthcare information exists and is held by people and gathered by companies that's not covered by these HIPAA rules at all. There might be state laws, there might be other kinds of laws, but there also might not be. So one of the issues that we've been working with over the past 10 years or so since the HIPAA rules went into effect and the law was passed is figuring out where there are gaps and where there are other places uh, where we need protection. But right now there is not one single uh, law that covers all of healthcare privacy. So how about, um, let's talk about pharmacies and sure. what kind of privacy do we people have when they go to their pharmacy, I mean, we see those lines like you have to stand, t- you know, 10, 10 steps back. You sure. can't get near. So what about that? People don't understand that. They're always asking me about that. Well, phar- pharmacies are considered healthcare providers, so they have to follow the, the rules uh, the same way that a doctor or hospital or health insurer does. And what you see with those lines is how a pharmacy is trying to make sense of the obligation to try and protect information. And then it gets really tricky because you have, you know, some pharmacies that are standalone pharmacies, but more typically you walk into a CVS or a Walgreens, it's a drugstore where you can get, you know, go to the pharmacy, but you can also buy a candy bar and buy some soap, or you go to the Safeway and you can get the pharmacy there. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to take this little healthcare piece that's covered by the HIPAA rules and that we're concerned about and fit it into this big business where they don't necessarily care that much about what kind of bread you buy when you go to the grocery store. So what a lot of companies did was said, all right, we're going to make sure that people, nobody can look over your shoulder and see what your prescription information is. It's the same kind of thing we see when we go to the doctor's office. You know, you have sign-in sheets. You may or may not have to put your name. They may take your name once you've written it down. They may give you a number. I mean, these are all efforts to try and restrict your information um, in settings where someone else might be able to hear it. It's part of the reasonable safeguards part of these HIPAA rules where companies are supposed to take reasonable precautions to make sure that your information doesn't get disclosed to other people. Kirk, you know, I get a lot of people calling me that sometimes they have a problem when they go to the hospital to say they have a family member, a sister, or a very close cousin, or someone is in the hospital in an accident and they want to get in and get information. And the hospital tells them, no, we can't because we have HIPAA laws. What about that? Sure. Well, that's, a, that's a, a good example of some of the dilemmas that we start to have when we talk about these rules. Everybody is in favor of health care privacy. There's no one who's against health care privacy. But when you tell a hospital that they're supposed to follow these rules and they're not supposed to tell somebody other than the patient about the patient's condition, 
That makes a lot of sense. That's a that's a, a principle that we apply. It just starts to become a little difficult to apply when someone else wants information. Everybody who's a family member wants that information, but the rules are designed to set up for, so that the hospital won't, in fact, be disclosing it. And how are they? How is the hospital supposed to know that you're the sister or the mother or the father or the or the friend, what if you're the neighbor? What if you're a boss? What if you're an ex-girlfriend? What if you're somebody who doesn't like you? What if, what if you're a reporter? What if you're, you know, so it's very difficult for the hospitals to figure out what to do. And so what these rules have said is basically tell the hospital, you shouldn't tell anyone unless the patient tells you it's okay to tell them. Now, that obviously doesn't work very well if I've been in a bad accident and I'm unconscious. Right. And the hospital certainly does have some flexibility to talk to people, but frankly, the rules are set up to sort of discourage them from telling somebody unless the patient has really said it's okay. So, again, sometimes we like our privacy. Sometimes there's a concern and there's a trade-off and there's a negative to having this kind of privacy. It comes up in other situations. Let's say that... Um, you know, uh, I have insur- health insurance through my, through my law firm, and my wife is covered under my insurance policy. If I want to have my wife handle the family insurance issues and she calls up to ask a question about a claim, that insurance company might or might not talk to her. They know that most of the time it's my wife who I've asked to make the call, but they also know that one out of 100 times it's almost guaranteed to be we're in a divorce situation, we're in a child custody dispute, it's someone pretending they're my wife, etc. So they have to take precautions to make sure that they're not revealing information to the wrong people. And what that tends to mean is they'll only talk to me about it. Right. So we can understand that, and it's a good thing most of the time. But again, privacy sometimes creates some concerns and some, some uh, negative consequences. We're speaking with a wonderful healthcare privacy expert and great attorney. We are speaking with Kirk Nara, who is a partner with Wiley Rhine LLP in Washington, D.C., where he specializes in healthcare privacy, information security, and overall compliance litigation and counseling for the healthcare industry and the insurance industry. So, Kirk, you know, there's another thing. When we go to the doctor and we get these quote, privacy notices. A lot of people who I've had on my show really believe that those are really more disclosure notices than really any guarantee of our privacy. So what do you say to that? Sure. Well, there's really two different things that are going on with those notices. I mean, what the notices are supposed to be is exactly a disclosure. It is supposed to be telling people what a doctor's office or a hospital or health insurer uh, is going to do or is permitted to do with your health care information. Um, now, the idea makes a lot of sense, assuming that people actually care about that. It's not entirely clear when you, when you go through the, the actual events of how people look at these things, whether how much they care about a lot of these things. But the, the, so there's a regulation in the HIPAA, the, the HIPAA rule that says doctors have to give out those notices, And basically what the rule says is you've got to put down everything that you might do with that information so that you can tell people about it, even if most of the time you don't do all those things. So you end up with a very difficult-to-read notice that's designed for the doctor or the hospital to meet its legal obligations. It's supposed to tell patients what's going to happen with their information or what might happen, 
but we don't find that very many people read them, they don't understand them, and the rules almost push hospitals and doctors to include things that really don't need to be there that might happen one in a million times because the rule says they have to. So there's a lot of question about whether those notices really serve any purpose at all. Um, when I do speeches on privacy, a lot of times I'll ask people if they ever got any of these privacy notices in the mail, and almost nobody ever remembers that they've gotten one in the mail. But you get them from you know, your health insurer, you get them from your banks, you get them from your credit card companies, you get them from all your insurance companies, all designed to inform people about their privacy rights, and nobody reads them. Right. Although with the financial privacy, you have a right to opt out right there. You can opt out of a- absolutely, having Absolutely, and yeah. almost nobody does it. Oh, really? I, I do. I even <laughs> in front of privacy professionals. And the number of times where I get more than one or two people in an audience, even a big audience, who can say they know they've gotten these notices, they've read them, and they've actually done something in response to them is almost never. Yeah, <laughs> so I... there's a real question about whether those notices serve any purpose or whether you know anyone other than a very tiny minority of people read them. And frankly, it's a big it's a big cost. It's a big uh, you know there's compliance costs, there's mailing costs, there's transaction costs. So it's actually very expensive to do those notices. And again, it's not clear to to me just in in dealing with these issues over the years, that most people actually benefit from these notices at all. So that's, that's, again, one of the real open questions about privacy law. It's 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 a core principle of privacy, which is tell people what you're going to do. We just find that most people don't actually pay that much attention to it. And I think part of that, Kirk, is that they're not always so easy to read. Absolutely. You know, they're very complex, so people don't even really understand what they're reading, and they don't always understand what their rights are. And if a a company says, you know, that they will, um, you can opt out except for anything that is required by law, well, they don't even know what that means. Absolutely. And and, and we see that exacerbated in the healthcare context. I mean, the the ones that the banks send out are about a page. And they're reasonably easy easy to read if you chose to read them. You may not understand everything, but they're shorter and they're they're relatively concise. The healthcare ones are much longer and much more confusing, and we can sort of blame the government for that. The 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 regulation, as I said, requires healthcare companies to list all of the possible uses and disclosures they might make of information. Um, and basically, what the rule says is, if you don't write it in that notice, you can't do it. So there's things in there that if you go to the doctor, there's no chance that they're going to disclose your information, you know, to a to a coroner in connection with a, you know, a medical investigation of a right. death. That happens one out of 10,000 times, but if you don't say it in all of those 10,000 notices, you can't do it the one time that it matters. That's just the way the law works. So, you know, we we could we we wrote these this rule to force people to say a lot of things in these notices. I don't think we did a good job of writing these notices to actually help people understand what's going on. Right. And, and people will just, they figure if, they, if they're going to the doctor, they better just sign it. It's almost like those arbitration agreements. You know? Well, it's a little people... different because it's not, you don't have to sign it. it, does, it right. does, all the signing does is says you got it. Right, right. No, but they do <laughs> want you to you sign it that you got it. You don't have to agree to it. Right. You're just saying they gave it to me. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, I... and the, other, the other thing that, they, that I think the government did a good job of with these rules is basically what, is, what, what they're allowed to do with information is primarily 
the things that you would expect. If you go to the doctor, most people would expect that the doctor is going to take information to use it for treatment. He's going to submit a bill on it. He's going to share it with another doctor who's consulting on the project. The insurance company is going to read the information. They're going to evaluate the claim. They're going to use it to evaluate the doctor. They're going to, you know, it, it's the rules are set up to make it easy to use information for what the government has decided are legitimate purposes, which are for the most part things that people would expect. I mean, nobody would really expect to go to the doctor and not have the doctor turn in a bill for them. Right. So it's a little weird to say you've got to write out in a notice that we're going to take your information and use it to submit a claim to your insurance company, but that's, again, what the notice says. I don't know that there's necessarily a big value for that. Right, right. I think some of the things that surprised them maybe would be that it might be used for research. You know what I mean? That yeah, but there's, very, there's right, very particular right. rules on research. I mean, that, that, may, be, that, that may be a tricky example because there right. are very particular rules about how research works. And it's actually not something that doctors or hospitals can do automatically. They have to jump through some very particular hoops before they can use information for research. Um, but again, that, that's another trade-off that we have. There are lots of people in the research community who believe that the HIPAA privacy rules have actually created significant impediments to effective medical research. Now, again, that's, a, that's an open debate, but some very well-respected people in the research industry are absolutely convinced that that's true because it, it actually makes it, the HIPAA rules make it harder to get patients involved in research protocols and research programs. They don't make it impossible at all. They just make it harder. And so that means more costs and more expense and more administrative. Costs. Right. Probably more disclosures, more prior consent. Exactly. Yeah. It's, just, it's yeah. just trickier and more complicated, included in, including in situations where there's really no impact on the patient. I mean, for example, we've always had in the research community the, this idea of informed consent. And what that historically has meant is that you know, for example, let's say you're, you know, you're in the hospital for some issue and they want to try an experimental drug on you. You need to know what the risks are of this experimental drug. You need exactly. to know the good news mm -hmm. and the bad news. And so, but, but that's because this drug is going to have an impact on your illness. If somebody wants to look at um, you know, your, your, your paper records of your weight over the last five years to fi figure out if somebody has been gaining weight or losing weight and there's no, other, there's no impact on you, it's a very different calculus. There are privacy issues involved, clearly, but it's a very different idea than, you know, you might be harmed, you might not be cured if you take this experimental drug. So we've had to, we've had to sort of uh, develop some concepts in privacy that are modeled on some other concepts, but they don't always work very well. So, so Kirk, what in the world does this all have to do with health care reform? We're, we're hearing every day in the news about health care reform and costs and all those different things. How does HIPAA really relate to that? Well, HIPAA is an interesting, I, I would call it a significant tangent in the healthcare debate. And here's what, here's what I mean by that. What we're trying to do in healthcare, in, in healthcare reform right now, is figure out if there is a way to give people the quality of healthcare that they expect and are entitled to and still be able to afford to eat. <laughs> Right. You know, essentially still be able to afford all of that quality. And so we're evaluating insurance reform and we're evaluating tax issues and we're evaluating all of these kinds of other issues. And those are you know, obviously very important and that's the core of the healthcare debate. 
What we're seeing is there is a development in the fields of healthcare technology that are creating opportunities and possibilities to both improve care and cut your costs. So we have the possibility because of health information technology of having it both ways, of having better care and reducing our costs. And that's through developments of things like electronic health records, where the goal of electronic health records is to improve the quality of care, to make sure that you, you know, a doctor can see all the tests that have been done about somebody, make sure the tests aren't duplicated, make sure that if you have a drug, drug interaction, they're going to know about it, to make it more efficient to treat people, to make it more efficient to turn in the bills, to get it paid. There's a lot of possibilities that are, that are created by these electronic health records, but privacy is surrounding all of those electronic health records, and there are lots of concerns being raised that these electronic records are somehow changing our privacy interests. And my concern is that privacy is going to play such a significant part in the evolution of the rules in this area that um, we won't actually be able to achieve some of the benefits of these records. So that's how privacy is fitting into this debate. We've got these great opportunities through technology to improve care and cut costs, and privacy and security are part of that debate and in some ways are affecting the debate in such significant ways that that the goals may not work. Yeah. You know, what I'm really scared of, being a an expert on identity theft and seeing what happens when there are errors and fraud in your report, whether it be your personal health profile or your financial profile, but especially with, with healthcare, I, I'm just finished writing my, my new book on the Complete Idiot Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft, and I did a whole chapter on medical identity theft. And what I worry about with these electronic healthcare records, and, and maybe you could enlighten me a little bit about this, is my, my fear about errors and fraud and how those will proliferate with these electronic records being shared and sent. And, you know, how do you, how do you keep up with it? We know with credit reports, for example, uh, the Public Interest Research Group found that 70% of credit reports had errors and 30% were enough to even keep you from getting a job or getting a, a credit card or a car. So what about that whole issue of, of you know, the, the not just the, not the security, but that's a whole other issue, but the, um, the accuracy of these sure. records? Well, you, again, you're raising a couple of different questions that are all very important and very much part of the debate. And you know, you, you, you're analogizing to the credit report system, and, that, and it's, it's, a, it's a potentially useful analogy, but we have a credit report system right now, and we have a credit report system that has many flaws, but generally, I mean, I'm going to overgeneralize, but I think generally serves uh, a productive purpose and generally works, you know, works for more people than it doesn't work for. What we're seeing on the healthcare side is, having this debate now while we're trying to build a system. And one of the concerns is that all of these issues that are coming up might mean we don't ever have the system. So that's part of the calculus, and that's part of the debate and part of the complication. But, Kurt, just a minute. If, if we build into the system the safeguards, and, and I think that's, that a- is kind of the issue, is how, can we build security into it if if we just go ahead with something without 
building the safeguards in, then you try and get the safeguards afterwards. It's, you know, it's, it's a lot harder. Absolutely. So, so, so in a way, you know, the fact that this, this debate is going on and this dialogue is going on now, I think it's healthy because we're going to build in some of these safeguards that we've learned from other industries. Like, hey, this has to be working in a totally different way. We have to authenticate and we have to make sure that the records are accurate and somehow have accuracy built into the system rather than, okay, well, we're going to find errors. And then after somebody's hurt, we're going to correct the errors. I mean, that's what I deal with, with, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of victims of identity theft. They have to try and fix it later. So no, in a way, a, in a way, and, it's and really that's, great that's perfect, that it's happening, you know. Yeah, no, that, and, and that, that's a that's a perfectly fair position, um, and I agree with a lot of it. I'm just concerned that um, we're creating we're creating a lot of problems, or we're thinking about a lot of problems that are causing the system to really not get started. And there's a couple of reasons for that one is cost, which is you know, which is another reason why you can't separated from the healthcare reform debate. If we say the only way to do this is to build a perfect system that takes care of all these issues and we study them, and we, you know, we're, we're not ever going to have that system. Now, that may be a perfectly appropriate result. You also made the distinction, be, uh, you talked about security. I am all for security. I think security is a much more important component of this debate um, because, every, again, everyone's in favor of security, and security, as I look at it, is basically making sure that whatever rules we decide on for the system, only the right people, basically the rules are being followed. I think security is great. Where I think we're really going to have some complications is on the privacy side. And, again, I don't want to minimize privacy. Privacy is very important in this area. But for example, here, here's here's the, the the sort of easiest way I have to think about it, and it and it it caricatures the debate a little bit, but I think it does, you know, it does help people understand how this debate is playing out. The premise of these electronic record systems is that, you know, let's go back to your accident case. Somebody's in an accident. The doctor who's never seen them before can open their record and figure out if they've got a drug allergy, if they've had other kinds of problems, if they've had issues, et cetera, et cetera. If we say that you're going to have more privacy rights in an electronic record than you have today in anything else, and you're going to have the right to pick and choose what information goes into that record, all of a sudden that doctor can't rely on the record that's in front of him. It's not going to be complete, or he doesn't know it's going to be complete. And so my concern is we've now made that system not work very well or not work for the things that it was designed to work for. So that's again that's the debate that we're having right now and it's a, it's a tough debate i don't i don't mean in any way to say that there are easy answers to this i'm a little concerned that congress has stepped in with some new rules and basically said we're done talking about this here's the new law and it's not clear to me that the new law is very good so yeah. it's a very very tricky issue but again i think part of the thing we've got to think about maybe this makes it this is different from credit reports or other things is we do have a public component of this whole debate it's not it's not the question of you you know your privacy rights compared to your bank here we have your privacy rights compared to the doctors and the hospitals and health insurers Plus, it's got to be compared to the public interest in healthcare costs and the fact that the public's paying for it. So there's another side to the debate that isn't present in some of the other areas that we talk about for privacy. Yeah, you know, Kirk, I'm not against uh, 
electronic records. Uh, I just don't want you to think that I am. I, I like the idea of having the electronic records. I also like the idea of having a system similar to the credit reporting agencies because when I deal with victims of medical identity theft, there's no central repository for us to go to right. and see what's being exchanged. So in a way, I'm a really strong proponent of it because I'd like to see a central repository that if you're a victim of medical identity theft, you can go in there and say, wait a minute, you know, this isn't really me and that's not my blood type and God forbid right. I am in an accident. I want O, not B, you know, to be put into me, you know? Well, and, 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 and so I, I think it's a good idea. I think... The, the concerns that I have is that the patient have an ability to make sure that those rec- that they have access to those records and that they have the ability to correct them and all of those privacy principles that you make sure that it's accurate. You know what I'm saying? That's, yeah, no, that's... And, and, and you're actually you're actually outlining, um, frankly, a very interesting and reasonable. I'll, I'll, I'll call it a middle ground, although it's. It's sort of on a different side of some of the other debate. I mean, th- for, first of all, um, what we're doing right now for the most part is continuing to convert paper records to electronic just within a doctor's office or just within a hospital. Right. And that's a very early stage of what we're talking about. Right. The, 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 the real benefits of these records, the, the systemic quality, cost savings, et cetera, are going to come from something that looks a whole lot more like the central database you're talking about. Mm-hmm. There are, when, when you say central database, there are people all over the country who are, who are in the privacy field who that makes them, you know, that's, that's the worst thing they can think of in this area from a privacy perspective. So that, that becomes a real red flag in that area. Now, you could make the argument that for things like identity theft, a central database is actually the best way because you, exactly. it's the easiest way to police it. So there's a lot of advantages to that. You also raise the idea of access and giving people the ability to look at their records. I, I think that's a great idea. I, I would be very supportive of that. But that's also, but, but let's, let's play that out in the credit report area. You have the ability to look at your credit report and say, that wasn't me who defaulted on that loan. You don't have the ability to say, it was me, but take it out. And that's what we're seeing in the healthcare area. We're right. seeing well, the possibility of saying, you know what, I don't want that that thing listed in my record. It's accurate. It's about me. Just I don't want it in there. So it's a very different discussion. And I think that well, we being able to look at really that and say, that. that's yeah. not my record, that's a huge benefit. But, being but wait able a to second. pull out and say, I don't really want that part of it in there is a different issue. Right. Well, you can't do that with a credit report either. Exactly. No, that's I, what I'm saying. Yeah. But we're letting that happen in the healthcare industry. Oh, I see what you're saying. I think it depends. And again, I don't know who would see it. If, if you have something in there that is possibly a genetic something genetic that could cause you, for example, to get cancer, breast cancer, or something like that. And that, if you were fearful that that would be shared with a possible lender, for example, who or some company that shares information, your insurance carrier could could share it with one of their affiliates who's a lender who might decide that you don't deserve to have a mortgage. There are are rules that say you can't do that right Right, right, right. That's what I'm saying. That's, I think, a a big fear of of maybe affiliates that might see this and share this information, which then you'd be denied benefits. I think that's knowing from being part of the privacy community like you are. We know what 
some of the privacy advocates are saying, and and it's it's a fear that people have. No, and, and I, again, it's a perfectly legitimate fear that, for the most part, has been covered by the existing laws. And one of one of the concern that concerns that I have is that uh, we're we're taking. For example, we're taking in this electronic health records debate, we're taking the judgments that were made in the HIPAA rules, which I don't want to say they're perfect, but they, you know, they created a healthcare system that had a certain set of principles around it, and we're saying those rules aren't good enough if we go to a different system that now is more electronic. And I still need to be convinced why the base set of rules isn't good enough, why we should have one set of rules if your information is on paper and a more privacy protective set of rules just because something's been converted to electronic. That's again that's that's one I'm struggling with a little bit just in my own thinking about it. There may be different security procedures that you need to have because you don't have to worry about somebody hacking into a file cabinet. You have to make sure the you know, you have to worry about how somebody could steal records from a file cabinet too, but we need so the security principles might be different. I'm not sure why we need different privacy rules, you know, what well, you can I do think, with information, who can see it, just because it moves from privacy, I mean, from uh, paper to electronic. Right. Uh, what I've heard people say, and I think the biggest concern is when you have something in a filing cabinet, there is there is obviously less opportunity for access. Yeah, I'm not. You know that 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 may be a fundamentally flawed principle. I mean, we're seeing in the healthcare industry. This is actually a significant problem in the healthcare industry. We're seeing all kinds of problems with employees misusing information they exactly. have access to. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And so, but that can happen with a file cabinet. In fact, sure. Now, that's the only person that can that can uh, go after a file cabinet. So again, that's an idea that. You know, I do hear people saying exactly the same thing. I'm just not sure when you push that through, it's actually right. Right. So, yeah. you know, and again, I'm all for security. I am all for making companies really protect the information that they have. What what I have more concerns about and what I think is being distorted in the debate today. I don't it's not a non-issue and it's not a inappropriate issue, but I think what is getting distorted are the um, are the privacy pieces more than the security concerns. Again, security is very important and there clearly are weaknesses in security not limited to the healthcare industry. We have weaknesses sure. in lots of parts of our, of our society. Um, but, but I'm struggling with, with some of the need for changes on the privacy side. When we, you know, we already have laws that say you can't use this information in connection with lending. We've already got laws that say you can't fire somebody because they have a sick child who costs a lot of money on their health insurance policy. You know, we have the laws that deal with the substantive problem, but, but now we're tying that into, into these privacy issues. At a time where our healthcare system, for all the reform discussion, is you know teetering at the brink, and some of these records give us the opportunity again to improve quality of care while still cutting costs. There aren't very many things in the system that are going to do that. Right. I I think one of the things that that you see that a lot of other people don't see is when you talk about security, that includes a lot of the privacy issues. Okay, and what I mean by that is when you're talking about security, you're you're talking also about limiting access. You're seeing that as a security issue, correct? Uh, yeah, limiting who can access and right, how they right. can access. Yeah, for the yeah, most part, yeah. that's but right. But my experience, in, and this is from dealing with a lot of companies, and I'm sure you have because you do this all the time, even more than I do, 
But there is a real misunderstanding by a lot of security people in IT. They can lock up, they can uh, encrypt, they can do all these things, but they're not thinking about access. So maybe they give the key to decrypt to too many people and they don't know what's what. Or, you know, so much happens with actually the access issue which is a security issue, but it's also a privacy issue. So you've got this blending that they kind of overlap, and you get the you get it. Yeah, but I, I can honestly the, the tell I, you that a lot of them don't. It, yeah. is, I, I don't know that there's any, any uh, either genius to this or any standardization to this, but I think about privacy as the set of rules about what you can and cannot do with information. And security is basically the enforcement mechanism for that rule. Right. And so when you go into a hospital, there's a rule that says, you know, any nurse who needs to, to provide some treatment to a patient can have appropriate access to that, that person's information. That's a legitimate privacy rule. You say nurses who are involved in treatment can see the records. And the security principle would be, if you're not involved in the treatment, you shouldn't be looking at the record. Right. And so that, that's, a, I mean, again, we, we could be at the margins of that, but the real problem, I mean, the privacy principle is any nurse might need access to somebody's information to treat them. Right. Security I, I, needs to be put into effect to make sure that you have some way to, to ensure that nurses are only looking, and I don't mean to pick on nurses, it could be a lot no, of yeah, it could be an anybody, example. yeah. You know, nurses are, in fact, only looking at records of the people whose treatment they're involved in. That might be auditing, that might be spot checking, that might be, you know, very aggressive password controls and things like that. I mean, the hospitals shy away from those because the person might need access very quickly for an emergency. Um, but we do have to do a better job, I think, of sort of policing the back end because we have been having a lot of problems on the back end with, you know, whether it's a nurse, whether it's a customer service person, whether it's a check-in person, it might be a, a, an insurance company claims for, you know, people that need lots of access to do their job, it doesn't mean they need access all the time to everybody's information. But if you, if you call up a customer service, you know, a 1-800 number for any business you're dealing with, those people who aren't highly paid for the most part, you know, they need access to information about every customer because anybody might be calling, but you have to have some way to check that they're just not rummaging through the system. Right. No, I, I think it's a real rough situation. But I, I was thinking just about this woman who called me who was a nurse and this is a little bit off subject, but not really, because it, it deals with the issue of privacy versus security and what's really happening in security. Anyway, this woman called me from Florida, and um, she was she'd been a nurse in this hospital for many, many years, and she was fired because someone using her password had gotten in and taken all these controlled substances. Mm-hmm. And everybody knew that everybody knew everybody else's passwords, okay? It was out there. Anyway, the whole issue of that's, you know, here you have security, you have passwords, but there's no enforcement of those passwords so that anyone had access to that sure. th- that stuff. So, it's but, but that's usually... almost an easy one in the sense that it's very easy to teach people not to share their password. 
Yeah, but they do it anyway. You know, you've read the Poneman Institute studies, and I'm one of their fellows. So, you know, it's a people problem in in many ways, isn't it? And and that's an important, uh, that's a very important point to make, and it's true in the healthcare business, and it's true really in any business. Everywhere, yeah. You know, not everybody in a company needs to understand how the firewall works in their computer system. Everybody needs to understand how to control their password. And there are very practical um, useful sort of little things that people can do to actually make a very significant difference on security. Um, and again, it's not training it's them training. how to understand how the you know all the routers it's, work and how all the firewalls work. It's training them to That's, use what you know, they've got. Yeah, it, it's that it's the ba- it's the basics on security. And I and I do think that um, you know we've we've had a history in in some businesses and in some situations of favoring the convenience over the security side. And I think we do need to flip that in a lot of situations. There's no reason for someone else to have your password on a regular basis. There just isn't. Right. We're speaking with Kirk Nara, who is a partner with Wiley Rain, LLP in Washington, D.C. He's a wonderful lawyer who specializes in healthcare privacy, information security, and overall compliance litigation and counseling for the healthcare, insurance, and financial industry. You can hear how articulate he is, how really enlightening he is. I, I think it's wonderful. Thank you so much, Kirk. Let's get back. You know, talking about security, uh, you know, the 2008 study by Larry Poneman, the Poneman Institute, found that the healthcare industry is among the top three industries most frequently victimized by data breaches. And we've all heard about the data breaches. So what about that? And wh- what are we doing about that? Well, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a tricky situation. And that's, that's somewhat because the healthcare industry covers such a wide range of entities. I mean, it ranges from you know, a solo physician who's got an office, some, you know, one office somewhere with one, you know, a nurse or office manager who helps him or her to, you know, the biggest hospital systems in the country, to the biggest health insurers in the country, et cetera. And so we've but got wait a, a minute, very... But wait a second, Kirk, but we, but we really only hear about the large data breaches because the small ones that I hear about, I advise doctors and small offices to just call their patients or to send a letter to their patients, it doesn't become public that he's that the Poneman Institute looked at the publicly reported records, which means like big university hospitals, big health care centers. Yeah, although they, they, I think there are a lot of incidents. They have, you know, the, 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 the biggest security breaches that we've seen over the past few years have not been health care. They've been, you know, financial services right. and the credit card companies, things right. like that, where you've right. had, you know, millions and millions of people. We don't have, we don't have health care breaches that involve millions and, you know, millions of people. We, we don't have very many that involve, you know, thousands even in the health care industry. And, and I think it also, you know, a lot, a lot of what we see are, um, breaches that are, you know, for example, we'll, we'll see reports of, of tapes missing and things like that. Well, those are clearly not good things, and you don't want that to happen, but a lot of the breaches that we've seen don't actually result in anything happening. Or we and don't know that. Now, this we, don't, is... we don't know that, but we also, we, we don't know that for sure, but we also have no, um, you know, if you follow them down the road, you don't actually find anything happening in a lot of those situations. So, I mean, look, but let me, it's let me just an interject. area where the healthcare industry, yeah. like many other industries, needs to do a better job of, you know, buckling down its data. And we've got a new law in place that Congress passed last year that is 
pushing people in that direction is going to report more of these breaches. I think any law that says you report more breaches is going to have an effect on security because people aren't going to want to report them, so they're right, going to try right. to do a better job. Right. We're Are you talking about the... So I, I think we're, you know, we're pushing people, you know, but it, but it also is it's it's time and money, and that's a tough thing for a lot of healthcare businesses. Again, like like many other businesses um, in this climate. So, were you just talking about the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act that was signed by Obama in uh, February two thousand nine? Yes. Okay. I mean, so that, let's that talk law, a little bit I mean, about that. That title goes is is the whole economic stimulus bill, and there right. was a little piece of it that has to do with the healthcare industry. So, so let's talk about that piece so that we sure. can help enlighten our listeners. Sure. I mean, the, the, the economic stimulus part of the legislation that's relevant to the healthcare industry had to do with these electronic health records we've been talking about. And right. basically, there's been an effort going back to 2004 to try and get doctors and hospitals to convert their paper records to electronic health records. And again, it's sort of the first step in those different benefits that we've been talking about. And we've been finding that doctors in particular haven't been doing it. It's too expensive. They don't know what system to buy. There's a lot of worry about what, you know, what we call the, the, the beta, you know, the beta max VHS debate. You don't want to buy a system that's going to be right. outdated. So people haven't been doing it. So what the economic stimulus part of this legislation did was it's basically going to pay doctors to implement electronic health record systems. And so over the next several years, if doctors convert to these systems, they're actually going to get paid more by Medicare and sometimes by Medicaid for having electronic health records. So that was the stimulus part of it. And again, there's a lot, you know, we can debate whether it's going to work and we can debate whether people are going to do it, but we understand the rationale for that. How much is that going to cost us? Well, it's actually that, that we know the cost of that. The cost of that is about $19 billion. (laughs) That's the amount of money that's in the, in the, um, in the legislation to pay people for that. That's going to be spread out over a couple years. But then what Congress (laughs) did is they said, all right, now now that we're talking about electronic health records and there's been this whole discussion about whether we have privacy and security, let's just stop talking about that issue. We're going to have new privacy and security rules. And by the way, we're going to use this excuse of these incentives to implement electronic health records to pass a bunch of new laws, but most of them aren't going to have anything to do with electronic health records. Um, So we have a new set of laws that have nothing to do with the economic incentives to implement uh, electronic (laughs) health records. So that's what we're dealing with in the healthcare industry now, is a bunch of changes to the laws just because Congress was sort of done having the discussion. Is it because they just don't get it, or is it too overwhelming? Well, again, I don't, I don't want to over, you know, it, it's not an enti- it, it's not a, um, it, it's not that the provisions are necessarily bad provisions. The, the, the logic didn't make a lot of sense to me to say we're going to give doctors incentives to convert paper records to electronic records. Therefore, we need new privacy and security rules, and therefore those rules are going to have nothing to do with electronic health records. So it is going to be expensive. It's going to change how the HIPAA rules are affected. It's going to impose a lot more obligations on the service providers to the healthcare industry, the people that, you know, that, that provide services to doctors and hospitals and health insurers. We're going to have some more enforcement of these rules. So it, it's, again, it's just changing the environment for privacy and security. You know, much of that is good. I do think it's important to make sure that people in the healthcare industry continue to pay a lot of attention to these rules. 
But some of the changes that are in the rules are, again, it's a little hard to see why they were needed or what they're actually going to uh, going to accomplish in connection with these rules. So we're going to be playing that out over the next few months, and that's a lot of the work that I'm doing these days is working with people who are trying to figure out what these what these laws mean and, and how they're going to follow them and what it's going to do to their businesses. So help me understand, Kirk, with these personal health care records that, yep. you know, I'm I'm really kind of confused about how that would work. So I set up my own electronic records on my own computer. What has that got to do with all this? I'm (laughs) I'm sorry that I sound so stupid, Uh, but I don't get it. You know what? It's a great it's a great question, (laughs) and it's part of the area of confusion, and it's part of the overall debate. Okay. Um, We we've been talking for the last little bit about electronic health records, which is a term that's. You know, developing in its use, but essentially what an electronic health record is the record that a doctor or hospital keeps on you. It's the old paper file converted to an electronic record. So put that aside for one second. We now have this thing called personal health records. Right. And the idea there is to give you as a patient control over your overall health care information, to give you the opportunity to have a personal health record. Now, you've always had that opportunity up to a point. You could have your own file cabinet in your office where you put all the stuff from all the different doctors you go to. What we're giving now is we're having technology give you the opportunity to have an electronic personal health record. And there are companies all over the country who are willing to sell you a personal health record or offer you. They They may not even charge you for it. Um, there's a lot of companies, big Internet companies and, and others. One of the complications, going back to some of the questions we started with at the beginning of the show, those personal health records might have nothing to do with doctors or hospitals or health insurers. And so there is a legitimate debate, an absolutely legitimate debate, about whether there are any laws at all that are applicable to a company, you know, a software vendor who sells you a personal health record and stores your health record on the Internet. So one of the things that Congress has been looking at is do we need to have rules for those people because they're not covered by the HIPAA rules? That's a perfectly legitimate question. And what Congress did in this new law was basically say, eh, we're not sure what to do about that, so let's have somebody study it. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a privacy issue as well as a security issue Absolutely. as well. I Absolutely. mean, who are they going to share that with? Are they going to use that to, to exchange with somebody else so that a- somebody can market it to us if, if we have hemorrhoids or something? A- you know? Absolutely, <laughs> and that's exactly one of the concerns. Now, now, I will also tell you that many of the companies that are in that, in that business are actually doing far less with the information than anybody else would be because they know that they don't have that opportunity and that's not what they're trying to do and they know that their business will fall apart if they start doing it. So I think in practice, lots of those companies actually are behaving very well, but there's no law that says they have to. Right. Right. But they're the good guys. You know, you've always got those that... Well, that some do. of them are the good guys. And you're right. There, there may be bad guys. And, and the good guys may be doing things that you don't really want them to do, even if they're the good guys. Exactly. Exactly. But, and I don't know that much about this, but I thought in Europe, people have their personal health records and they bring it from doctor to doctor. Is that true? 
Uh, I don't know if that's true in Europe. It's certainly a model. I mean, it's it, it's hard to see that it could be too true just because that assumes that everything's electronic. Right, right. I mean, that's and I don't one of the problems that, yeah. that we have today is I might want to have an electronic health record. I mean, excuse me, a personal health record that I control as a patient. But if my doctor is not electronic, it doesn't do me any good. Right, and right. So, yeah, and, and, and one of the things that these companies are offering is the ability to aggregate data from a lot of different doctors but that assumes that all of them are electronic, not only that they're all electronic, but that they also have a relationship with the company that's offering the record so that the information can come in. And again, there's a question about what's the value of those personal health records, because if you, if you in fact, take that record to your doctor, the personal health record is something that you as a patient absolutely control. Right. So it's not clear to me how valuable that is to a doctor. Especially if it's incongruent with the electronic health record well, that they it, might yeah. be getting. Or, or we know that you have the ability to pick and choose what goes in that record. So how can I, if I'm a doctor, and, and, we're, and we're seeing this as, as a privacy issue, we're also seeing this as a, as a medical malpractice and a liability and a quality sure. of care issue for doctors. Yeah. Is what, do, what do I do as a doctor with this pile of stuff you hand to me? And, and the veracity of it and, and even the understanding that, that people might want to take something out that really would be so beneficial to their health or God forbid they they had some something that they left out that really would affect the diagnosis. I mean, and, what, what, and people don't tend to take out of their records things that don't matter. I mean, they don't, if, if, if I've gone to my podiatrist and he says that I have a, you know, a hangnail on my toe, that's not the kind of thing that people are going to tend to take out right. of their electronic right. health Right, but if you had gone to a major <laughs> substance abuse problem or they've had a mental health condition or they've had sure. HIV or they've had, you know, the things that are, that are very yeah. significant medical conditions, those are the things that people might want it, might take out of their records and would have a very detrimental effect if that's the record that's given to a yeah. healthcare provider. Yeah, see, I would rather have the, the system similar to the central source that I could go to and correct just like I do with the credit reporting agencies because it it drives me crazy when I'm trying to help a victim of criminal identity theft or medical identity theft. I I have to go to so many different repositories. I just can't really help them because if I think I've got it, yeah. There's a real question as to whether these electronic records are going to make identity theft concerns greater or lesser. And I'm not convinced either way yet. I mean, it it may be easier... I'll tell you what I think. I don't think it's going to be as preventive of identity theft. However, in terms of recovery, when I've got central resources to go to, if I go to Choice Point for a background check, okay, or if I go to the credit bureaus and I want to see where these fraudulent loans are on there, I can see it. What's scarier and more insidious is if I can't find it. Right. You know, and where has it been shared, and where has it been sold, and who's had access? All yeah, but let, let, let's play the, out those examples for a minute. I mean, the real concern with medical ID theft, I think. I mean, again, this is this is you know my my perception of this is adverse impact on you if you go to a doctor and there's information in there that's not yours that affects what the doctor does. Exactly. Yeah, you know, that, I mean, but, but, yeah. but that's but that's a different issue because if if you I mean one of the issues we have is if you can't find it. 
how is the information from the other person going to get into your record? There's a real question about no, that. No, what I mean, I'm saying today, is if you if can't... I, if I pretend that I am you... Wait a minute, if you can't find the source, I meant. No, I, absolutely. That, but, but, but a lot of times you can't... It's not in the record either. I mean, if, if, I'm, if I pretend I'm you... I mean, that's not a good example. It's no. Hard to, you know, but but if, I, if I pretend I'm your brother... <laughs> yeah. And, and I walk into uh, the hospital down the street here in Washington, D.C., and I pretend I'm you... Right now, there's no impact on you medically because there's no connection, I mean, on your brother, because there's no connection between the record that's developed for me and whatever record exists in California for your brother. So right now, we have a real separation. I'm not sure that's necessarily going to change, but we may also have the added benefit in some of these technology areas if of being able you... to track information more completely. So or unless there's the good somebody... news, bad news about these electronic records yeah. with, with identity theft. I'm, I'm talking about if somebody is able to use your health care, your health carrier, that kind of a thing. Right. That, there's that kind of issue. But you know what? Amanda says we're out of time. Gosh, I got to have you back, Kirk. This is so exciting. I, I hope you didn't feel that you were on the hot seat because you gave such <laughs> wonderful information. You're terrific. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate well, it. Well, just give your website, and then we're going to have to have you back again. Sure. We are at www.wileyrein.com. That's W-I-L-E-Y-R-E-I-N.com. And you can find my information in a variety of privacy articles and materials on there as well if you'd like to look on that and certainly be happy to come back in the future. Okay, thank you. did a terrific job. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Join us every week and also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. See our upcoming guests, download podcasts, write us about what's important to you about your privacy in the information age. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.